and a very warm welcome to uh, Burning Man. Uh, welcome particularly if this is your first time here. This group meets fortnightly on Thursday mornings at, uh, at 7 o'clock in term times. And I think this is one of the first Thursdays of the year that we're actually meeting in the daylight. So um, it hasn't been quite so painful to, to get here. But uh, anyway, congratulations for making it for, for 7 o'clock. My name is Tim Mullins, and I'm one of the vicars here at St. Michael's Chester Square. And this week at St. Michael's, we, we have a week of special events uh, and all sorts of different things going on. Last night we had a dinner in the Carlton Club. Tonight we've got a wine-tasting evening here and that sort of thing. But uh, our speaker at each of these things is Canon Roger Simpson, who's come to join us with a team of, uh, of friends from York. And um, Roger is actually... Uh, Roger, come up and I'd just perhaps ask Roger one, one or two questions. Uh, very warm welcome to you, Roger. Uh, first of all, um, what, what do you... Uh, when you're not in London, what are you basically doing when you're based at York? So I uh, work with the Archbishop. Do you know uh, John Sentamu, the Ugandan? And so I tend to work with him, but I also work with my wife in a little, we call it Coronation Street. It's a sort of little back-to-back -back terraced house parish. So she, she's a vicar in York, but you have a much wider remit. Yeah. What, what do you do with Sentamu? So uh, we do missions around the north in towns and cities and parishes, really anywhere that will have us. So we were recently in Barrow. Do you know, have you ever been to Barrow in Furness? That's an interesting place. Great place to go for your holiday, <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah. Especially if you're into, if you're into nuclear missiles. Yeah. yeah, hunter-killer submarines yeah. there. Um, and Roger, um, you're, you're, you're no stranger to London. You used to be based here? Yep, used to work in the West End at a church called All Souls Langham Place next to the BBC. Fantastic. Well, it's, uh, it's great to have you here, and we're going to hear, I think you're going to interview one of your team later on. Yep. But uh, without any more ado, ladies, um, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen please, please give a warm yeah. welcome to Roger great. Simpson. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'd be very grateful if you've got, there is a Bible around, if you'd like to just get one of those, because we're going to be looking at that in a minute, but just a few words of introduction. Um, I used to live, before I lived in York, I lived in Vancouver in Canada, and uh, one of the uh, church wardens was, um, he was a banker, and uh, he, he was part of the Amish, have you heard of the Amish community? So, um, and I heard this story about a, a boy and his father, they were Amish people, and uh, they went to this shopping mall where they were doing some shopping, and they were amazed by absolutely everything that they saw, but they were particularly surprised by two shining silver walls that could move apart and then slide back together again. They'd never seen anything like this. It was incredible. So the boy said to his dad, what, what's that, dad? Or father, what's that, father? And the father, who'd never seen a lift before, said, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I don't know what it is. And as they were watching, the doors opened and a fat old lady in a wheelchair was uh, wheeled up to the walls and the walls opened and she passed through uh, into a little room. And then, then the walls closed and they watched the small circular numbers lighting up sequentially. And they continued to watch until they reached the very last number. 
and then they began to light up again in the reverse order. And finally, the doors opened and a gorgeous 24-year-old blonde woman walked out. And the father <laughs> couldn't keep his eyes off her. And he said to his son, quick, go and get your mother. <laughs> anyway, again, that's nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> I came across it and I just loved it. I thought it was great. Now, I want, to, I want to chat to you uh, about keeping the main thing the main thing. And uh, the, uh, that, apparently that is attributed to Stephen Covey, who was an American businessman who died in 2012. And it's, it's actually a little mantra of mine. I often say, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And um, I came across a book recently called The Death of Christian Britain. And it's by a writer called Callum Brown. Some of you may have read it. And he wrote this. This book is about the death of Christian Britain, the demise of the nation's core and religious identity. And then he said this, and I think it's very tragic. It took several centuries in what historians used to call the Dark Ages to convert Britain to Christianity but it has taken less than 40 years for this country to forsake it. And uh, most of us are very used to certain headlines, which we see in the newspapers. Um, I suppose I read these articles because I'm a clergyman and I'm interested in what's going on in the church in this country. Dramatic decline in attendance. Church attendance figures fall again. And... As we're seeing the demise of the church, though I have to say it's not all one picture because I get to travel around a lot and there are many churches which are growing very, very vigorously. So it's, it's a very patchy picture, in fact. But as this happens overall, this trend is that way, we're also seeing the results of a society that is attempting to shut God out of its life. So every day, at least three, this is amazing, every day, 312 couples get divorced in this country. Someone calls the Samaritans in this country every five seconds. The pornographic industry in this country is now worth over one billion every year. There are 30,000 Christian clergy of all types, but there are more than 80,000 registered witches and fortune tellers. And Britain is not the only nation that is in trouble. There are many other nations which are also going through great times of trouble. And as well as national troubles, all of us, at some point in our lives, are going to face trouble in our own lives. It just happens. Trouble with our health, trouble in our marriage, in our family, relationships or lack of relationships, job or lack of a job, or other work issues or some sin or temptation, or addiction, or fear, or loneliness, 
or discouragement. or de- That's going to happen to all of us. None of us get through life scot-free. So the, the question I want to address this morning is, how do we keep the main thing the main thing? I mean, it's a really important question. And what is the main thing? What should we be focusing our lives on? So if you've got your Bible, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's on, I think it's on page 1155. And I'm going to read two verses from the New Testament, which are favorite verses of mine. And then I'm going to try and explain them to us this morning. And then when I've done that, uh, I'm going to bring a friend of mine up to interview him. So let's see what Paul says. Verse 3, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. What's the main thing? And then he says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then he goes through a list of all the people that Jesus Christ appeared to after his resurrection. So try and use your imagination for a minute. Um, Paul has been preaching in Athens. He's been debating with philosophers, Epicureans, and Stoic philosophers, and he's arrived in Corinth. He's never been to Corinth. Huge, bustling seaport. It it was a byword for immorality in the uh, ancient world. And um, he's come to tell them about an entirely new faith. They've never heard about Christianity. And um, he says earlier on in his letter that when he came to them, he came in much weakness and trembling. Uh, Now, I have to say that sometimes when you're a preacher, there are some situations that you go to where you go in much weakness and trembling. I'll tell you, the most terrifying experience for me as a preacher in the last few years, I I have four sons, and the older son, after going to Cambridge, joined the Royal Marines. Very, very tough. And I was invited by the, lead, the head of the Royal Marine base, which trains all these guys. I was invited to go and speak to all the fathers and the sons who were passing out. Now, in the particular group that Tom was in, have you all heard of Poirot, you know, the uh, Suchet? Well, Suchet's son was part of that group. And I said, you don't want me, I'm just a clergyman. You know, get David Suchet, he's Poirot. And they said, no, no, we want you, Mr. Simpson. We, we think you've got something interesting to say. I was absolutely terrified. I was with all these Royal Marines. They were all getting ready to go out to Afghanistan. Tom was one of them, and, and Iraq. Well, it was Iraq and then Afghanistan. And I had to speak to them all, and I was terrified. So I, I can really understand. I know when I'm terrified because my knees go up and down in, under my trousers. I, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but I'm really terrified when they go up and down. And I, they were really going up and down there. So Paul, probably, I don't know, he had bandy legs. Uh, he arrives in Corinth, and he's, he's in fear and trembling as he starts to speak to them because they'd never heard of Christianity. Now, the thing I want you to notice is he said, I delivered to you, I received what I passed on to you 
as of first importance. What does he tell them that is of first importance? And uh, he tells them uh, two great facts. And the first fact is that Jesus Christ died. He died for our sins. That's in the beginning. And then the second fact that he tells them is that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day. And you will find, if you go through the New Testament, that wherever Paul went, and he went all over the ancient world, he preached those two facts everywhere he went. You find him preaching them in Ephesus. You find him preaching them in Thessalonica, in Philippi, in Rome, in Athens. Everywhere he went, if you boiled his message down and you said, Paul, what's the main thing? He'd have said to you, the main thing is that Jesus Christ died and that Jesus Christ rose again. And that's why he says they are of first importance. This is what he handed on to them, what was of first importance. Now, I, I want to just say a bit about this, because I find this very interesting. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, that he would have spoken as of first importance about the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's never been anybody like Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever lived the sort of life that Jesus Christ has lived. I mean, he is the most incredible person. If, if you don't know much about the life of Jesus Christ, I just encourage you to get hold of a gospel and read about it. So he could have started there, or he could have started with the miracles of Jesus Christ, the incredible healing miracles, the extraordinary things that Jesus Christ did. But he doesn't. He says that what he focuses on, what the main thing is, is the death. It's the death of Jesus Christ. And he probably reminded them of the awful events that surrounded the death of Jesus Christ. The arrest in Gethsemane. The trial at night. It was an illegal trial by the Sanhedrin. The beating, the terrible, terrible flogging when he was tied up and beaten by a Roman soldier so that his whole back was torn in shreds. Terrible pain. People went insane with the pain of that. And then the mocking and the humiliation as they paraded him in front of all those Roman guards, over 600 of them, with a crown of thorns. And not a neat crown like you see on these, in these pictures, but a, a clump of thorns rammed onto his head so his face would have been covered in blood and then a bulrush put into his hand and he was beaten and blindfolded and, and he had this cloak on his back. They called it, they said, you say you're the son of God. And then they took him out and they drove those nails through his wrists and through his, through his feet at nine o'clock in the morning. Terrible, terrible pain in the upper part of his body. He couldn't stand the pain for very long, so his body would slump onto his feet. Terrible pain in his feet. Then he'd have to lift himself back up again. By it. That's why crucifixion was so painful. And then that awful, awful darkness which came down on the face of the earth. 
at 12 o'clock and his shout from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then as he died at three o'clock, he shouted out, it is finished. What I've come to do is finished. And that curtain in the temple, which had separated the people from God for all those centuries, was torn in two. There was a way open into the presence of God. Now, he may have told them all about that. We don't know. But the five short words which say why the death of Jesus Christ is so important are there in verse 3. Christ died for our sins. Why did he go through all that? Why did he suffer so much? He did that for us, for our sins. Now, I was trying to um, think of an illustration, and I, I to, to try, because I'd seen that. I'd seen those words. They meant nothing to me. I'd seen them on billboards at uh, railway stations, and Christ died for our sins. I thought, what does that mean? didn't mean anything to me. And, um, and often we can hear the words, but it doesn't actually impinge on us. So I came across this, this beautiful story, and I'll try and get it right. It was a, of a little girl called Liz, and she was suffering from a very rare and serious illness. And the only chance that she had of recovery was a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother. Now, miraculously, her brother had survived the same disease, and he had developed antibodies as a result, which were needed to combat the illness. So the doctor explained the situation, and he asked the little boy, he said, would you give your blood for your sister? And the little boy hesitated, and then he took a deep breath, and he said this, yes, I'll do it if it will save her. And as the transfusion progressed, he lay in bed next to his sister, and uh, she was smiling, and the family was smiling, and he was smiling as the color returned to his sister's cheeks. And then his little face grew pale and his smile faded. And he looked up at the doctor and in a trembling voice he said to the doctor, will I start to die straight away? The little boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought he had to give his all to save his sister. He loved his sister so much that he was willing to die instead of her as her substitute. Now, of course, he lived, the little boy. But God loves you so much. He was prepared to give his own son. That's how much he loves you. Now, that does something to me, because I'm a father. I've got four children. And I wouldn't give my son. It's one thing to give yourself, but it's another to give your son. God's only got one son. And he gave him because he loves you and your sins needed to be forgiven. So 
he tells them about the death of Jesus Christ. And he also, if you look at the text again, the second thing that he tells them about is that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. What was the main thing? I passed on to you as a first, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Now, the New Testament is beautifully simple about the way in which it tells us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are, if you go through the gospel accounts and you put them together, you'll find that there are a number of themes which emerge. So all the gospel writers want us to know that when Jesus was taken off the cross at three o'clock, he was dead. They want us to know that. So there are lots of little incidental details, like the soldiers did not bother to break his arms or his legs. Usually that's what they did to hasten the death process. Because if you, your arms were broken, you couldn't lift yourself up. You couldn't breathe, so you died of suffocation. Usually people didn't die of crucifixion in six hours. Pilate was even so amazed when he heard that Jesus was dead. John tells us that a soldier put a spear into his side and the blood had separated into clot and serum. So they all want us to, and that's a mark of when the, when the body dies, the blood separates out. They want us to know that he really, really was dead. Secondly, that he was buried. They only had three hours in which to bury him because the Sabbath began that night. So they had three hours in which to embalm the body and bury him. And they buried him in the tomb of a man called Joseph of Arimathea. And they embalmed the body. They put bandages around the body and a a tourniquet around the head. They want us to know that. He was buried. You don't bury people who are alive, unless you're a sadist. He was really dead. He was buried on the third day, that he was buried. And then they want us to know that he was raised. And if you go through the accounts, you'll find again and again, they point to the fact that the tomb was empty. Group of ladies, women go there on the Sunday morning. How are we going to get into the, the tomb? They're discussing that. And when they, when they get, there's a huge rock in front of the tomb. When they get there, they find the stone rolled away and they head off and they go to tell the men who are all hiding and they send out the the leaders John and Peter John gets there first it's all all there in the account then Peter comes running up behind goes straight in and what and then John sees something which convinces him that Jesus has really risen sees the bandages in the same place that they'd been uh, that night uh, when the body was, was, was buried, except that they were, there was no body. It was like the uh, butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. And then all of the writers tell us about the appearances that Jesus made. He made many appearances. Uh, he appeared to over 500 of them on a mountain. He appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden. She thinks he's the gardener. He appeared to two of them on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the, to the disciples as they were fishing by, in Galilee. There are lots of, of, of instances. And it was the 
preaching of these two facts, that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised from the dead, which changed the whole of the ancient world. By keeping the main thing the main thing, they transformed the ancient world. Churches were planted, hospitals and schools were started, women and children were honoured, humility became a virtue, gladiators stopped fighting in the arena. Countless, countless people's lives were turned around. In fact, they turned the whole of the world upside down. So I'm not pessimistic about Britain. We might only have a few of us left. But by golly, we've got the message to beat every message. And if they can turn the Roman Empire upside down in a generation, think of what we could do in this country if we were burning men. Like Wesley, give me a hundred men who are burning for Christ and I'll turn this nation upside down. Now, why... Why is, are these two facts so important? And I, I'm just going to say a couple of things, then I'm going to bring Warren up. Three things I want to say. I believe that the reason that Paul preached this message was because this message, the death and the resurrection of Christ, is the one message that can meet the great cries of the human heart. And I've been very lucky. I've Worked, I started working in the middle of London, then I went to Edinburgh and worked in the middle of Edinburgh, then I went to Vancouver and then York, and now I go all over to very exciting places like Barrow in Furness and Rotherham and Doncaster and Middlesbrough. Then they're great cities, Pudsey, Shipley, going to Shipley in a few months. And I find it doesn't really matter where you go you'll find that people are the same underneath. And I've gone to many countries, been to Mongolia and Burundi and the Sudan and India, preaching the gospel. And I've found that wherever you go, wherever you go, people underneath are the same. And they have similar needs. Now, what are these needs? Here are three that I think only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can answer. The first one is, I find that most people, if you really talk to them, would, would say to you that they have an inward sense of failure. Most of us have that. It might be a failure to achieve all that they'd hoped to in life. Maybe it's a failure in some of their relationships, some of their key relationships. And this sense of failure is with us. We live with it. Uh, The Bible, the word the Bible uses to describe this sense of failure is the word sin. When I fail people and I fail God, the Bible says I sin. And uh, I need someone to forgive me for my sins. Lee Craymore, the rapper, I looked him up this morning, the entrepreneur and record producer. And and he said, and he speaks for many people when he says this. He says, I'm not a Christian because I'm strong and have it all together. I'm a Christian because I'm weak and I need a savior. 
And actually, everyone, everyone needs a saviour. We all need a saviour. And that's why, that's why Paul talked about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, because we need someone to forgive us. And there's only one person who can forgive us, actually, and that is Jesus Christ. Secondly, the emptiness of life without God. Now, I don't usually read Cosmopolitan magazine, I have to say that, but I do sometimes when I'm in the dentist. And I read about Freddie Mercury. I read, actually, about him many years ago. And he talked in this interview uh, that, he, that he had, he, talk, he said, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And he described how he had all this money and success, and yet he said it had stopped him from having the one thing he really wanted which was, or needed, which was a loving, ongoing relationship. We need Jesus Christ to give us that loving, ongoing relationship. And the other thing that I often talk about is the, which you don't tend to think about when you're young, but you start to think about it as you get older. One man said it's like you move to the front of the queue. As you get older, you start to move to the front of the queue because a lot of your friends have already gone and you realize that you're getting near the front of the queue. We are all going to die. And when, what's going to happen to us when we die? The Bible tells us that when we die, all of us must stand before God and give an account to him for what we have done in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I need a very good barrister. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, I can stand in the presence of God, forgiven, healed, restored, because of him. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the main thing, and we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Now I'm going to ask Warren to come up, and um, I've just got to know Warren in the last few weeks, and uh, so Warren, tell us a bit about your story, because you, this is quite new for you, isn't it? Uh, tell us a little bit about what you used to do. Uh, uh, first of all, Roger, I'm glad you gave me a minute to compose myself. I thought you were going to call me up after you told the story about the little boy and the little girl, and I thought getting oh. up at six in the morning is one thing, then being called up in front of a church full of distinguished gentlemen in tears is, is not going to end up good. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm... Uh, actually, I'll go back. I'll tell you yeah. what I was. Um, I sort of left school, and uh, I found the world a very alluring place, uh, and I saw that success... Uh, comes from money. Uh, and so that's what I pursued. Uh, I pursued worldly things. Uh, and I was actually successful at that. Uh, I went into bodybuilding. My idol, actually, in the 90s, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, in the 90s, it was all Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, and Sylvester Stallone, and it was bigger and better and badder and stronger. They ruled the world, uh, and they were A-list celebrities, you know, a celebrity-led culture. And I thought, that's a blueprint that I'm going to follow. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, and I was very successful at that, actually, to the point as I got on the TV show. It was the biggest TV show uh, uh, on television at the time. Uh, I was being paid, well, probably a couple of hundred thousand pounds a year. And they actually named me Ace. So <laughs> with that name, I mean, I mean, can you imagine? I was 22 years old. I was being called Ace. I was earning a fortune. And I, I had absolutely everything that I wanted. Um, fast cars, lots of money, beautiful women. I travelled around the world first class two, three times over. 
Um, and in a strange way, it was fascinating listening to you there because uh, I believed, because I was so successful at such a young age, uh, I got so conceited and, and so full of pride that I actually believed that I had a relationship with God. I, 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 used, to, I used to pray. I'd say, oh, thanks, God. You know, this is great. I'm doing fantastic. It's all, could it, it's all because of you. Uh, and I believed that to be this blessed, I must, it must be the work of God. It must be. Mm. Um, and that's incredible. That's scary when I look back at that, you know, because it's, I, I was so busy looking down at other people and sort of saying, well, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that, and what you need to do is more reps in the gym, and what you need to do is get a suntan, build bigger arms. And, and I was so busy looking down at others, I never really looked up, mm. although, although I thought that I was. Mm. Uh, so that's quite a scary place to be. And then, and, then, and then, obviously, you've got to ask yourself, you know, why are you thinking like that? You know, how's the world that alluring that you've actually turned away from God without even realising that? It's mm. quite scary, Roger. So how did you get on the path that eventually led you to Jesus Christ? Because I think that was, that was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I exhausted every avenue, really. It got to a point where I had so many experiences um, that actually life became boring, you know, and I, I can admit this in, in front of a room full of men. I wouldn't if my wife was here, by the way, but even like uh, sexual relations with one beautiful woman, that was no good in the, in the end. You know, I wanted two, and then I wanted their friends, and, and it's like an appetite that never stops, and I found that with everything, even with cars. You know, you buy a 180 gram Bentley and go, yeah, that's lovely, and then the new shape had come out, and I thought, this is like an animal trying to devour its own tail. Like, it's like I was going around in, in circles, mm. uh, and I found a bigger property that I bought, you, someone once said to me, you don't own property, Warren. Property owns you. And I thought, wow, this is, this is you know. And so I started going down the, the, the new age spiritualist uh, uh, route and, and, and self-improvement because I could feel like there were holes appearing. Um, but but they, all seemed like, they all seemed like empty avenues. It was all self, self, self. Um, so I ended up quite confused, you know. And, and, and I mean, I look at it now, but it was a massive blessing. When the show Gladiators ended... Mm. Uh, my world fell, fell apart. You know, initially it was like somebody had given me a lottery ticket uh, and then called me back six or seven years. I didn't work for seven years, you know, to, called me back and said, can I have that money that, that you want? And then just taking it all off me. Mm. Um, you know, and I literally derived my whole identity out of money, wealth, fame, uh, and all the things that, that, that the world offers. And then how, what happened? Because you actually met a millionaire, didn't you? And... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a bit... <laughs> I'm a bit ashamed to say it now, really, because obviously I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But before I did, um, I always thought everything in the world's branded, you know, and, and I derived my identity from, uh, from, from what I was wearing, from what I was driving, from the girl on my arm. From, and so with all these choices, it was like, well, this is who I am. This is what I'm affiliated with. And so when, when people said to me, oh, you know, there's Christians, I just thought of people in socks with sandals on and, you know, and they, and they, and they give all their stuff away. And I thought, I don't want to give my stuff away. I've been following Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he stands there going, you know, life's fantastic. It's all about being rich and big and all these things. And so I thought, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. So I couldn't get my head around. And, and the other thing is the world's managed, it's managed to make Jesus Christ not cool as well. Yeah. So even the word Jesus, you think, oh, if I've got to mention that, people are going to go, oh, he's oh, a Bible bash. Oh, it's God's squad. So I was very much, mm. I was anti-Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm standing here in a church today, I was anti-Christ. You know, it was something that I that, that had completely turned away mm. from. You know, and I, from a young age, my parents said, you can go to church, Warren, you know, and you can have the free sweets and stuff, but don't let them brainwash you. Yeah. And now I realize 
that after pursuing all the pleasures in the world, I actually need my brain. I needed my brainwash by the time I came to Christ. Yeah. So yes, um, I met a guy called uh, I met a guy called Julian Richard, who owns um, you know Julian obviously, uh, who owns Richard Sounds. Uh, Julian's worth over fi- uh, 500 million pounds, and he's a business advisor uh, to Prince Charles, etc. Um, and I believe now that God put him in my path. Um, but that was the biggest block for me. I just thought, I don't want to join a line where I'm going to lose all my stuff yeah. and I'm going to become a plum that people just sort of go, oh, you know, he's gone round the bend. And so I actually went to Julian. And it's funny because Julian's already been there. You know, there's all the hurdles he's tripped over. I thought, oh, you know, I can avoid them because he's already been there. So I said, Julian, you know, I'm really struggling, you know, and I'm, I, I want to stay with, with, with my partner and stuff, but it's boring. And people were telling me stuff like, Warren, you do realize that when you've had sex with the same girl more than 10 times, your sperm count lowers. So that, 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 that's nature telling you, you need another woman. And I was believing this stuff. There's, some people have some real strange ideas. And they say, we're not meant to be in relationship. But I knew, because I'd had a son by that point, that life was about love, you know, yeah. unconditional love. But, you know, I couldn't... And what did Julian say to you? Uh, Julian said to me... Um, he said, Warren, he took me to, uh, we, we, we have these days out, and I went to one of his villas, and he said to me, Warren, it's as simple as this. Um, he said, go on an alpha course, get baptized, come back to me. And that's all he said. And I just thought, what, what, what? you know, and I, 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 but when it's coming to you, for, for me, where money was everything for me. Yeah, you took that. Yeah, and, I, I, I took that. And I, you went on one. Yeah, I went on an alpha course, yes. And what yes. happened on that? Um, they say the truth sets you free. Yeah. So I was just liberated, utterly liberated. It took six weeks. It took my worldly mind just kept telling me no, 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 no. Um, but I'm not a risk taker. I'm not a risk taker at all. I have to examine the evidence, and I did. I mean, I was coming down to London. I was looking for dead, dead Sea Scrolls in the museums. I didn't, you know, say it's a step in faith. There was no faith involved yeah. for me. I had to check and double check everything. But in, in actual fact, and and what's happened since? Just sort of. How has Jesus Christ changed you? Um, well, obviously, here you are now, and sort of tell us the sort of... Um, this hole that everybody talks about, you know, this, this you know, this, doesn't matter what you get in, the li- in your life, there always seems to be something missing. You know, I could be sat on a beach in Barbados at Sandy Lane, the best resort with the most beautiful women, lovely lobster in front of me, and I still wasn't happy, you know, yeah. or I'd have to go and have a few drinks to make it shine a little yeah. bit, you know. Whereas now... It seems like that hole uh, has, been, has been filled. Yeah, completely. Fantastic. Thank, can we thank Warren for just sharing? Thank you so much. Great. Great. So we're going to finish now, and because uh, I know you've all got to head off. Can I just draw your attention uh, on the table? So some little blue comment cards. We've got these at all the events. If, if you'd like to know 